Okay, here we go. Just remember that uh, when we're here, like at uh, 1230, that the blame is shared. All right. So um, before we delve in, I thought that I'd better provide a brief answer to the question going through your heads right now. What is the bass player doing in the pulpit and what has he done with our preachers? So let me give a brief overview to bring us up to speed as we begin this morning. Well, it all started in 1974. Uh, oh, not that, not that far back. Okay. Uh, well, how about this? Keisha, our children's ministry director, and our wi- and and my wife, not our wife. Uh, she and I came here, Sean just has a little bit on me, we, we came in 2001, or does he, 13, no, just barely, just barely a little bit of time on me here at Grace, and we got immediately coerced, I, I mean, um, uh, plugged into ministry by helping to lead the music on Sunday mornings. It was a privilege then, as it is now, to uh, help direct the hearts of worshipers to the throne of God on Sunday mornings. And I'm really glad that God chose David to have continued after Keisha and I stepped down uh, once Grayson was born. Um, For the past several years, I've served with Brad, Bert, Jim, Drew, Mike, and Chris as, as an elder. And before I jump off the review of me and my family, since I mentioned uh, Keisha, um, I meant to mention uh, Caitlin as well. We came here right before she was born, and I mentioned Grayson. I've got to mention Landon, of course, as well, on whom Rhett McLaughlin said we needed to keep a camera because we were bound to win $10,000. If you've been around him for more than 30 seconds, you know exactly what Rhett was talking about. So what does all of this have to do with Genesis? Well, nothing, of course. So I better move on. It makes sense that since we're wrapping up the series on Genesis today, that we begin with a brief review. So hang on. Here we go. The first book of the Bible, Genesis. Let's hear a song about it. And now, the Fabulous Bentley Brothers. Genesis begins it all. And appropriately, it's at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis really means beginning. If it were anywhere else in the Bible, that would be kind of confusing. Beginning of the Bible. Genesis. 
who does not know who those guys were? <laughs> Rhett and Link, of course, grew up right down the street here um, in Bowie's Creek. You check them out. They're crazy. Genesis is indeed about the beginning of it all. And it was written for all mankind. But let's remember that it was initially given to a specific group of people at a specific time in their history for a specific purpose. Now, all of the the accounts of Genesis help contextualize the Israelites' um, experience as they were out there in the wilderness wandering for 40 years. It helped to provide a national identity and a purpose. The great-grandchildren of Jacob, around 400 years after his death, were likely wondering, wondering what was their place in the world as they were wandering in the desert out there for those 40 years. Put yourself there for a moment. Living the life of a nomad. Following fire by day and smoke by night. Running out of ways to prepare manna. Maybe you were born out there and don't personally know anything about life in Egypt. Why am I here? Is this all there is? Will we ever settle? Prior to Moses writing Genesis, by God's Spirit, I'm sure that stories of giants known as the Nephilim and the great flood and maybe even remnants of the creation account were told to children as they lay down at night. And I'm sure that stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were told often. But in Genesis, God gave Moses the foundation on which these burning questions could be more completely answered for the people. Now, in, pro- in pointing out the prominent theme of how a younger son is given preference over the firstborn, the NIV Study Bible says this. Such emphasis on divinely chosen men and their families is perhaps the most obvious literary and theological characteristic of the book of Genesis as a whole. It strikingly underscores the fact that the people of God are not the product of natural human developments, but are the result of God's sovereign and gracious intrusion in human history. He brings out of the fallen human race a new humanity consecrated to himself, called and destined to be the people of his kingdom and the channel of his blessing to the whole earth. I trust that our study of Genesis has reminded you that God has created everybody and everything, that everybody has turned away from their gracious and loving creator, that everyone has always and continues to try to be their own authority, and many times other people's authority as well, and that though God punishes sin, he provides redemption, grace, forgiveness, and restoration through relationship with himself, ultimately expressed in the promised one, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, as I've looked more specifically into the last three chapters here, I'm coming up with really just one major point. God is sovereign. I have to admit, I was initially a bit frustrated at this being all I was coming up with. 
but I couldn't get away from it. I like, see, I like to know that I have kind of found something new and especially help someone else see something new that maybe we've not ever seen before. And with this topic of sovereignty, sovereignty being in my face, I was presented with at least two problems. First, I'm assuming this is not really news to anybody, that God is sovereign. So, strike one, I, with my liking to bring something new to somebody, right? Uh, next, I realized I was a little weary of God's sovereignty in my own life. Um, in at least two ways. One is I felt a, quite a bit of failure over the last couple of years, uh, just week in and week out, week in and week out. There's multiple times that I just was feeling like I could do nothing right for, for quite a while. And it's been difficult at times to know that all things are sifted through God's hands. And if he wanted to stop this string of failure in my life, he could. Or he had the right to allow it to continue. And if that wasn't enough, my, my response to those failures was pretty poor at times. Uh, callousness began to kind of set in and be my normal mode. And I was really beginning to wonder if that would ever pass. Ironically, I've also been frustrated by God's sovereignty on the blessings side of life as well recently. God's been extremely gracious, gracious to me in many ways, which you would think would bring joy and gratitude on my part. But, it, but in a strange way, I've struggled against that just as much as my perceived lack of blessing. See, I knew I didn't deserve these blessings, that I didn't earn them. And then if I fully accepted them, I'd somehow be on the hook for, for something, you know, to do something special or behave better. So long story short, as I've worked through this text, God has provided me with a fresh perspective on his sovereignty. And it's brought me from a, from a semi-bored familiarity with it to a renewed sense of awe for it. And from a frustration over it to a fresh sense of gratitude for it. So we're going to read most of chapter 48 here and several excerpts from 49 and 50. So as we do so, begin to meditate on this point uh, broken down in this way for today. God is sovereign over time. God's sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over his people and God is sovereign over me. It's a little bit of a long read, so we will remain seated. Now, remember that Joseph had his brothers and father settle in Goshen. They've been there about 17 years, and Jacob is near the end of his life. Starting in... Hmm, that's kind of small, isn't it? Starting in uh, chapter 48. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to see you, Israel rallied his strength 
and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt, this is Jacob talking to Joseph now, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Now, what Jacob was saying here, don't miss this. He said he was going to adopt Ephraim and Manasseh as his own sons. And what follows starting, uh, we're going to skip down to verse 8, is the adoption ceremony. Now, again, Jacob had been there for 17 years. He knew Ephraim and Manasseh. And... Since we know he was there about 17 years at this point, these boys were probably right around 20 years old. So just want to add that context. So starting again in verse 8. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? They are, son, they are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so that I may bless them. That, those verses there are the ceremonial adoption process just like a, in a wedding when the preacher says who gives this man to, or who gives this woman to be married and the father says I do you know like they don't know each other of course they know each other now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age and he could hardly see so Joseph brought his sons close to him and his father kissed them and embraced them Israel said to Joseph I never expected to see your face again and now God has allowed me to see your grandchildren, or your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh on his left toward, toward Israel's right, because Manasseh was the older child, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head. And he reached out his left hand and put on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. So the right hand went on to Ephraim, the younger one. And the blessing is shown through the right hand. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May, God give, uh, may the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, May he bless the boys. May, he, may they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they increase greatly on the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand and moved it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. And we're, we're going to skip down a little bit to verse 21 now. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you I give one more ridge of land than to your brothers. The ridge I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Now what just happened there? Jacob became a prophet. 
all of a sudden. And then he also gave Joseph in Manasseh and Ephraim the double portion of the inheritance. In other words, Joseph received the rights of the firstborn. And his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, would receive that double portion on Joseph's behalf. When you get a moment, check out your Bible's maps that show you the arrangement of the land for the 12 tribes. And you can see exactly how that was, um, you know, worked out for Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, moving on to 49, I'm going to uh, do a little bit of paraphrasing here. In verses 3 and 4, Reuben is now um, brought up to speed, so to speak. Reuben is the actual firstborn, but he's being uh, told here that he will not receive the blessing. Jacob says to Reuben, and this is a section where Jacob gives his blessing to each of his uh, sons. And here's the blessing. It may not sound like one, but it is the blessing that Jacob gives to Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch and defiled it. Jacob said, you're not receiving the, the, uh, the firstborn rights. I wanted to highlight Judah's blessing as well, starting in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? And this is a very exciting part here in verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he who, to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Sound like someone we recognize? This one who is coming in, from Judah? He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch, he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. What's the purpose of any prophecy in the Old Testament? It's to point to the Messiah, ultimately. Jacob has become a prophet. In blessing his sons, he predicts, he prophesies the coming of the Messiah from Judah's clan. And it looks like Judah's going to have preeminence here. Judah's, your brothers will praise you. Your father's sons will bow down to you. But skip on down to verse 22. We just finished saying Joseph had the rights of the firstborn through Ephraim and Manasseh. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber. Because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, 
blessings of the breast and the womb. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings. That's a lot of blessings. Of the ancient mountain mountains than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Looks like there's two families that are going to have some kind of preeminence. And then uh, a little bit from chapter 50 here. Now, after Jacob has died and Joseph and company had buried him in Canaan, the brothers were fearful that Joseph might pay them back for their sin against him. Starting in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph has become a prophet as well. And Joseph made the Israelites swear on oath and say, and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after that they embalmed him, and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. So on to these points about God's sovereignty. We said God is sovereign over time. Well, you may say, well, of course he is. But would we know just how much except that Genesis has taught us that God created the universe and everything in it in a particular fashion and order and allowed sin to enter the world and kick off time as we know it? He is the author of time. And I would point out that the root word in authority is author. God proves this in several places. But... Uh, Let's look to Genesis 6 really quickly for a good example. There's no doubt here that the buck stops with God. Verse 6, the Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe away from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. He brought you into this world. Well, you know the rest. The ruler of all time was ready to bring time to an end for all things. How about verse 8? Praise God for verse 8. A savior for all God's creatures. And time continues because God was pleased to have it do so at that time. Hang on, was this the promised seed? The one who would crush the serpent's head? Genesis has taught us that God didn't save Noah because he was that one, but that because Noah's descendant would be the one to do that. In the fullness of time, God has done what he's done, as shown in Galatians 4. Verse 4, 
He's seen to it that his will is executed as he chooses for his pleasure and glory. I'll just let you kind of read that one and let that sink in. God is sovereign over time. So a little bit more review to set the context of the last chapters here. So here we go from Noah. God covenants with Noah, or through Noah with all creatures that he will never again destroy them by flood. This covenant is passed down through Noah's family tree in general. And then somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand years later, God calls Abram, who comes from Shem's line, Noah's son. And then God covenants through Abraham, choosing a particular family to give them a land and to have them increase and to become as countless as the stars and to be a blessing to the entire earth. Now, Abraham's name means father of many, but one problem, no child. Sarah was barren. In time, though, some 20 years later, God gave Abraham Isaac and made it clear that the birthright would be Isaac's rather than Ishmael's, Abraham's firstborn. You can write down uh, Genesis chapter 21 if you want to review that. Then Isaac's wife, Rebekah, also was childless. And in time, God answered Isaac's prayer and gave Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob. And from birth, it was clear that Jacob, the younger twin, would have prominence over the older twin, Esau. Genesis 25 is where you can review that. Then some 80 years after Jacob's birth, God affirms the, Abra the covenant he made with Abraham with Jacob in Genesis 28. That the land he was on would be his and his descendants at the, and that the entire earth would be blessed through his offspring. And over the next 60 to 70 years, are you, are you hearing these time intervals? Let's not miss this. This is kind of the point here. God is sovereign over time. So after the next 60 to 70 years or so after Genesis 28, we see that God was working in his time to apply this covenant to his chosen people through Jacob and his sons, especially Joseph, that how in the face of sin and evil attempting to thwart the birth of the promised seed, how what was meant for harm, God used for good and established his people, now known as Israel, and caused them to multiply greatly into a nation during a worldwide famine. Was the covenant promise finally being fulfilled? So we've got the multiplication part of the covenant promise happening. But hang on, what about the promised land? They were still in Goshen in Egypt at the close of Genesis. The next way we see God... Uh, being sovereign over all things is it's obvious that in Genesis in these last three chapters that God is sovereign over the nations as well. There are countless examples throughout Genesis that show this clearly that God appoints the rise and fall of cities and nations and directs their course. But we're going to look to the last chapter of Genesis to let this truth sink in. 
And we know that Egypt, because of God's favor on Joseph there, was kind of like Israel's incubator, right? Jacob went to Egypt to ride out the famine with his family of about 70 people. Now, let's fast forward about 400 years or so into the future. Numbers chapter 1, verse 46, tells us that there were 603,550 Israelite men 20 years or older in the second year after Moses led the people out of Egypt. So the total number, including women and children, had to easily exceed 1 million. So from 70 that went down into Egypt, here coming out of Egypt are over a million. God is sovereign over the nations. (laughs) He used Egypt to accomplish that. Now this... Fast forward back over here to 400 years in the future. We know that at that point, Egypt was not terribly kind to the nation of Israel, were they? However, back in Genesis 50, the Egyptians, I would dare say, had a great deal of respect for Israel. Perhaps even a great love for them, as shown in the way that the whole nation of of Egypt participated in the burial and mourning of Jacob in verses 7 through 11. Even uh, Canaan seemed to have a healthy amount of respect as they looked on the solemn event. How could these two people groups, Egypt and Canaan, exhibit this kind of behavior here towards Israel in chapter 50 and be such conduits of blessing to this large family and yet be sources of strife and conflict and oppression and frustration and, and destruction for the nation of Israel on the very next page of the Bible. Except that God himself uses the nations of the earth as his tools in his hand to effect his will. That is, to, to fulfill the covenant promise to his people. Again, in his time, using whom he will use throughout the face of the earth. Next, we see that God is sovereign over his people as well. We've already touched really heavily on this fact in our quick overview of Genesis. God has clearly established his authority in his covenant people's lives by showing that he will choose whom he will and will bless whom he will bless. For me, the, the, the thing that really impresses this truth on me are Jacob's and Joseph's spirits. And then the continued theme occurring where the rights of the firstborn son are being passed on to a younger son. And as we just read, in this instance, even adopted sons, not even the direct, you know, descendant of Jacob. And as we've kind of meditated on how God is sovereign over time, it just became really obvious to me that Jacob's blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh there in in verse 15 in the 48th chapter in which he acknowledges the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm. It struck me that this was a deeply heartfelt and a joy-filled statement. Now, without completely reviewing Jacob's life, let me remind you of his character from the days of even him being in the womb. 
from moment one, he was grasping the heel of his older brother. He was a conniving deceiver. He tricked his earthly father to get his blessing and wrestled God demanding his blessing. Meek is not the first word that comes to mind when you look at Jacob's life. However, look at him here in his last days. The covenant relationship that God had forged with with Jacob slash Israel has changed him. At this point, I don't see any wrestling. I don't see any deceit. I see a man of God, a prophet that speaks the truth in love. Likewise with Joseph's spirit in chapter 50. The saying goes, time heals all wounds, right? But don't you find that family grudges really end up growing over time more than not? I know that if I could have recordings of grudges expressed in my family from like 30 years ago, that if you play them, and I hear Keisha chuckling because she knows exactly what I'm talking about, if you could play them, they would sound exactly like the grudges that are expressed today. That's the natural way. Why not Joseph? His brother certainly thought it would be completely natural. Look at chapter 50 again, verses 15 through 21. Though Joseph is a great man of God, we know he is capable of frustration and potential resentment. Back in chapter 48, we're told that he's displeased when Jacob crossed his hands. And gave the blessing to the younger son. But the tears that Joseph weeps here in chapter 50 verse 17. Upon hearing that his brothers were seeking forgiveness for their wrongs against him. Were tears of compassion and love for his family. An understanding that of his responsibility to submit to what God was doing in his family. And to offer everything he could to God for God's use. It's my opinion, I think it's a little more than opinion, that only God could sovereignly affect this spirit shown in Jacob and Joseph at the end of their lives. He said, Joseph says, am, am I in the place of God? Has Genesis not taught us that the natural disposition of man is to say, I should be in the place of God? I mean, being second in command of Pharaoh... Wouldn't that go to your head? Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. If you're his second in command, wouldn't you be thinking, well, I must be mostly God. People should worship me too. But here we see Joseph saying, am I in the place of God? Again, I say only the true and real God could sovereignly affect this meek, submissive, submissive, compassionate, and faithful spirit that we see here. And before he breathes his last, Joseph prophesies in faith, just as his father Israel had, that God will come and take them into the land promised to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And though I'm sure he had any and every luxury that the world could afford, Joseph longed for his bones to be laid rest in the land promised. To his fathers rather than Egypt. And let's not forget 
either that God is showing his sovereignty in choosing Joseph through Ephraim, remember, and Judah over their brothers, as we read in chapter 49. I'll have to encourage you, though, to look deeper into those events leading up to and following this sovereign choice for, for your personal study. Uh, you'll, find, you'll find some interesting in, uh, material in, I believe it's 1 Kings 11, at how, um, at how the Ephraimites and the Judahites reigned together during the split kingdom of Israel. So God has shown through Genesis, including these last chapters, that he is the final authority over time, over all creatures of the earth, the nations, his people. So it's not really a stretch then to conclude that God is sovereign over me, is it? There's really only one thing left to do. And it's to respond to this reality. And there's only two responses. Accept it as truth or deny it as false. So let's say that you accept that God truly is the ultimate and final authority over everything. That he indeed is your sovereign. Has God's intent through the accounts in Genesis, merely been to show that he can do what he wants and when he wants, how he wants, for as long as he wants, without asking for your permission. Though it's important to grasp and accept this truth so that you clearly get God's preeminence in the universe, in history, your life, it's important to ask why he exercises his authority in the ways that he does. And this brings us to another important decision point. If you've accepted that God is and accepted that he is all-powerful over everything, have you chosen to believe that he has done this or that he is powerful over everything and is affecting the course of the world and your life with meaning and purpose full of love and concern? Or do you believe that he is a spiteful, vengeful, pithy God, treating the earth and its people as lowly subjects with regard only for his powerful whims? The first one is the God of the Bible. The second is a God of human construction, a false God created in our fallen image. Let's not miss that God sovereignly exercised his will throughout Genesis in the way that he did for a purpose. Number one, he's revealed his character to us by doing, by, by exercising this sovereignty over everything. We see a God that, yes, punishes sin, but not with the full wrath that he has against it. So even though there are consequences for sin, grace and forgiveness abound. Remember, Reuben was displaced from receiving the double inheritance typically allotted to the firstborn. But he was still a brother. And he still received an inheritance. Levi, though scattered throughout Israel and receiving no, inherit, no land at all because of his sin with his brother Simeon, he received 
the perpetual priesthood of God. Though Ephraim and Manasseh were born of an Egyptian woman and raised as Egyptian, they were not only adopted by Israel, but also given preeminence over Israel. As we, as we mentioned, the northern kingdom of Israel's kings are from Ephraim's line. And though Judah sinned, he received an amazing blessing from Jacob and was told that his brothers would bow down to him and that the scepter would not depart from him. In other words, he would be their king. As chapter 49 verse 10 said, until the one to whom it, the scepter, belongs shall come and the, obe the obedience of the nations shall be his. This brings us to another purpose of God's sovereignty. Just as Jacob was pointing to the Messiah, God's sovereignty as exercised through Genesis points us to his son. As stated throughout this series on Genesis, from moment one, God's primary purpose is to point to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ, the promised one, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That is, destroy sin and death and redeem the earth and all its creatures by paying the price only he could pay. We've seen that no Genesis character has been qualified to pay that price since it is clear that sin abounded in their lives. But the way that God entered and directed their lives certainly focused their hopes and their expectations toward their promised Redeemer. So what should be our response to this? Don't be fooled and don't be a fool. And take a snapshot of your life and figure you know exactly how God sees you. Or that you've understood his plans for you or his love for you for better or for worse. Remember that God always sees that his will is done. Don't be discouraged and, and don't get haughty. Just like Sean was saying. The mountains have been made low, the valleys raised. Don't forget the immensity of God's sovereignty and the way that he has chosen to work through unexpected channels. And be careful not to hang on to your own definition of what, how, and when blessings should come. That if, and that if all you can remember in this life is strife, hardship, lack, sin committed by you and against you, and if your life is screaming, when will my blessing come? Remember that as uh, Sam Brown, the, the pastor up at Grace Prez in Fuquay, he stated in his sermon on this very same text that this is a story and stories develop. Remember that Jacob waited a very long time to see Joseph. And during the wait, the pain was still very real. Even after news of him being alive. But the story developed. He saw his beloved son and his response was, now I can die. 
Remember also that he never saw his homeland again, but trusted God and died peacefully and worshipfully and was commended for it in Hebrews 11. There really is no easy answer here, but there is a simple, straightforward explanation. God is sovereign, and he takes pleasure in seeing his will met through his timing at his discretion in grace-filled ways to undeserving people, ultimately through Messiah, Jesus. Therefore, you can and should trust that God's complete will for the earth and for your life is completely wrapped up in Christ. That whether you realize it or not, whether you accept it or not, that regardless of your circumstances now, in fact, through your circumstances, God is exercising his sovereignty in your life by revealing his character to you and by pointing you to his son, Jesus. So just as Genesis set the stage for the nation of Israel to hope for their deliverer, so may we live in expectant hope for the return of the true deliverer, Jesus Christ. It's only in him that the true rest and peace that your heart longs for exists. And only through submitting to him as king of your life and of our lives will we dwell in that better country, the heavenly one, with him forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Genesis, for seeing fit to give the accounts to Moses, to document them for all humanity and especially for your people. And thank you that we are found to be as part of your people through Jesus Christ. And that in him, all of these promises, all of these hopes, all of these expectations that are found in Christ, we can claim because you have sovereignly placed us into him through belief and faith in him. Thank you so much for revealing your character to us and for showing us your son, Jesus Christ, through your word and teaching us by the power of your spirit that he is the one and only son begotten of the father who has died and risen again and now is seated at the right hand of the Father, who will come back again on the clouds, calling his family to himself. Thank you that we have him as our king and will reside in that better country forever with him. I pray that as we walk these days, that we will do so with a clear understanding of your sovereignty in our lives, that we will submit to it and trust in you, that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.
if you'd remain standing for the benediction. From Romans 8. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Go in peace.